Good morning. I checked out the, um, the card section, Easter card section of a uh, IV, trying to find some uh, Easter cards, and um, I looked at the religious section. They have Easter cards. They have a religious section. I, fa- I found a decent one. <laughs> no, I really did. He found a pretty good one. Uh, he is risen. It says some verses on it. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, in a card, they have to have the thing in the middle <clears throat> that rhymes. At this lovely Easter season, as we joyfully recall, the promise of eternal life, the greatest gift of all, a special prayer is offered that God's blessings overflow because you're very special and a joy to those you know. <laughs> now, not all cards were as good as... The card that was <laughs> a little bit different. Uh, I, I picked it because it looked exactly like the dog we had once upon a time. His name was... Yeah, I forget his name. <laughs> Spark. Sparky was his name. So here's, here's, here's what it says. Okay. For this. Some cards are better than others. Yappy Easter. We're looking at um, finishing up a series, actually. We've been looking at uh, talking about spiritual laws, and there are three of them. Um, two kinds of laws, really. Uh, one is a reflection of how things should be. It's like, um, like tax laws, the things you should do when you're filling out your taxes. Another type of law reflects on how things really are, like the law of gravity. Whether you believe in the law of gravity or not, it still applies. Um, these two kinds of laws are reflected in the Bible. We're going to find three laws this morning, and we're going to talk about them and apply them, talk about Easter. Um, look in your worship folder. Um, I apologize if we didn't have enough. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, and then it skips ahead to chapter 8, 1 to 2, but they're meant to go together. I'm going to read this. Listen along. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, But the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress even though she marries another man. So, my brothers. You also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Three spiritual laws. Let's look at the first one. The first one is simply called the law. It's the law of God, the law that was passed down uh, to Mount to Moses on Mount Sinai. This is an example of how things should be laws. It's how we should live. Um, it's old covenant law, and the standard of behavior of this law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Again, it's like a tax law. It has a couple things. It has the law contains commitments, things that God said he would do for them. Commandments, 
things that they needed to do in order for God to keep his commitments and consequences, things that would happen if they didn't keep the commandments. Um, This is an example of uh, how things should be law. And there is here as well, though, uh, some examples of how things really are law. There is the law of sin and death. That is how things really are law. This applies whether we believe it or not. It's like gravity. And the law of the spirit of life, the same thing. And so what we've got to figure out is what do we need to do in order for the law of sin and death to be binding and for the law of the spirit of life to be binding. And that's what hopefully we'll do. Um, Spouses of law experience the law of sin and death. Look what it says, Romans chapter 7, verse 5. But when we were controlled by the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. That's why it's called the law of sin and death. Spouses of the law experience the law of sin and death, and it's not that they experience it whether they believe it. It's just that it's true, like the law of gravity. Um, Under the influence of the law, we have sin and death, and to be married to the law then is to be awfully wedded. You know the way it works with you take to be your lawfully wedded wife, and if you marry the law, you're not, you don't have an, you're not lawfully wedded, wedded, you're awfully wedded. Spouses of Christ experience the law of the spirit of life in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So the law of spirit of life trumps the law of sin and death. And so that's really what we want to land. We want to be spouses of Christ and not spouses of law. The question is, how does that work? How do we move from being under the influence of one law to being under the influence of the other law? That's what we want to clarify. But let's identify that to be married to Christ is to be happily married. And the point is of the passage that we can't be married to the law of God and the Son of God at the same time. That becomes important for us. You can't be married to the law of God and the Son of God at the same time. Um, That's spiritual polygamy. And it's really the point of the passage. Listen to what it says again. Follow along with me once more. Romans chapter 7, 1 through 4. And you're going to find that's what it is saying. You marry one or the other. You're married to the law of God or the Son of God, but you can't be married to both. And again, knowing that these are the experiences, this is, a, this is an important thing, isn't it? Because it's going to determine whether we experience sin and death or whether we experience spirit and life. I opt for this one. How about you? That's good. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law. A married woman is bound to her husband. And again, this isn't really, it's not really talking about human marriage. It's using that as an illustration to help us understand how spiritual things work. And and it says, uh, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies... She is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, 
you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Awfully wedded and married to the law, happily married when married to Christ. And this is how you go from one place to another. And this really focuses on why did Christ die? That's what we think about this weekend, why he died and why he rose. And this really is the answer. What it says, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. He died on the cross. When we are united with him, when we believe this, we died to the law through the body of Christ, that we might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. I would rather belong to Jesus. Because to belong to Jesus is to be happily married. To belong to the law means to be awfully wedded. We don't want that. We don't want that. And so the reason how we go from one to another is in Christ we can be lawfully widowed. Lawfully widowed. That's what the passage says. If the husband dies, you're widowed, and you can marry somebody else. So here's the deal. Through faith in Christ, he died to the law, and therefore it's considered that you did too. You're lawfully widowed so that you can marry Jesus. That's the point of the passage. It addresses the why did Jesus die question, doesn't it? Jesus died so that you can be lawfully widowed. That's why he died. Because if you're lawfully widowed, you don't have to experience the law of sin and death because you're no longer married to law and you can experience the law of spirit of life because you're married to Jesus. And this is what he had to do to allow that to happen. You can't just switch. You can't just jump from one to another. There's got to be a death. There's got to be a death. That's why Jesus died. So you can be lawfully widowed. Um, To be married to the law of God is to be awfully wedded. This is not a happy couple. (laughs) Represents the law. Person's awfully wedded. Here's the problem. Law instills fear, obligation. What's the third one going to be? Fog. The law inspires fear, obligation, and guilt. And you know the problem with that? When God judges us, he's not going to look at what we do. He's going to look at why we do what we do. And if God looks and sees that we are serving him out of fear, obligation, and guilt, he's going to assume that we're married to the law because that's what happens when you're married to the law. You experience fear, obligation, and guilt. If you're married to Jesus, do you experience fear, obligation, and guilt? Who are you married to? And some of us, again, we were raised... And our whole relationship with Jesus feels like fear, obligation, and guilt. You know what may never have occurred to us? We're married to the wrong one. We're married to the law of God. We don't want to be married to the law of God. We want to be married to the Son of God. We don't want to experience sin and death. We want to experience spirit and life. That's what Jesus died for, so that we can be lawfully widowed and married, remarried to Jesus. Um, And no longer under the... It's a fear, obligation, guilt. Some of you are saying, oh, wait, 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 Mike. What about sin, hmm? What about sin? Um, you know what's important in this passage? Sin is not an act. It's a power. 
The law of the spirit of life. The spirit is a person. The law of sin and death. Sin there is not an act. It's a power. It's, you might think of it as sin with king sin, with a crown on its head. Sin is a power. And here's the question. Where does sin get its power? It's possible to decrease the power of sin or to increase it. Sin is a ruler. I'm all for decreasing the power of sin. How about you? How does that work? First, we've got to understand that there's a difference between an act and the thing that propels the act. Let's talk about HIV, human immunodeficiency virus. And you know that HIV promotes a lot of symptoms. It, your body's immune system does not allow you to fight off diseases. So what ends up happening, you get a lot of diseases and you get a lot of symptoms. And so you have to treat the symptoms. What happens if you treat the symptom but not the disease? You're just going to keep on developing symptoms. It's not going to work. So we can't just address symptoms, acts of sin, because that's not getting to the root of the issue. We have to treat the virus. We have to treat the power of sin. How do we do that? Where does sin get its power? What it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, this is going to surprise you, maybe. Where does sin get its power? This verse is going to say it. See if you can catch it. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is, you know what? Here's what's weird. That's what's weird. That's what's weird. The law, isn't that what it says? The power of sin is the law. To the degree we wrestle with fear, obligation, guilt. God's not looking at our actions. He's looking at our attitudes. If God sees fear, obligation, and guilt, what is he going to do? Smile? No, because he died so that you didn't have to be wedded awfully, but married happily. That's why he died. Power of sin. And here's what Jesus did. You'd be lawfully widowed. When you're lawfully widowed, and we'll look at this, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. To the degree we start to believe this, here's what will happen. Look very carefully. What's going to happen if fear, obligation, and guilt get smaller? What would happen in your life? See, some of us are afraid, well, if fear, obligation, and guilt weren't there, I'd do everything he doesn't want me to do. Really? Really? That's the fear, that if you take fear, obligation, and guilt out of the picture, what will keep us do? from doing anything we want to do. How about love? How about that? When you're happily married, you know what ends up happening? You end up actually wanting. Wanting. A relationship. The story about a woman who told this before she was married to a kind of a tyrant, very demanding man. He gave her a list of 10 things she had to do. 
for him or else. She came to resent that list, as you can imagine. When her husband passed away, thankfully, when she passed, when her, when she, her husband passed away, what was she? Lawfully widowed. And she didn't need to be awfully wedded anymore. You know what ended up happening? She became happily married. And had a good relationship with her husband. He placed no conditions on her love or acceptance. One day when she was cleaning, she reached in and there was a piece of paper. She took it out and it was the list. What do you imagine she felt right away? Fear? obligation, and guilt. And then she started to think. The feeling of anxiety that accompanies those type of things started to dissipate. She relaxed. She reflected on the freedom and love of her present marriage. And you know what happened as she scanned the list? What do you think? She was doing every one of the things and more, but doing it out of the freedom of love then out of fear, obligation, and guilt. That makes all the difference, doesn't it? That's what she discovered, and that's what we find in the passage. Um, as no condemnation becomes bigger, fear, obligation, and guilt become smaller. Responsiveness grows. That's how it works. Um, I got a question. How do you kill sin? How do you kill sin? I mean, we're interested in this question. We have things that we do, and we're going to deal with sin all our lives. But how do we make it so that the impact and the power of sin decreases? Well, there is an answer. What it says in Romans chapter 7, verse 6 and 8. Again, I'm going to read this. But you see if you find it. How do we kill sin? That's what it says. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. For apart from law, sin is dead. Apart from law, sin is dead. What do we need to do to kill sin? Become apart from law. We have to go from being awfully wedded to lawfully widowed, happily married. And to the degree the impact of law is lessened, the power of sin is, that's the way it works. That's why Jesus died. So as we can become lawfully widowed, we can become happily married to Jesus. What does that mean? If we don't face condemnation, what are we supposed to think about? Um... We're supposed to be lawfully married and so happily married, so what are we supposed to think about? Hmm. You know that God has expressed wedding vows? You know that? Vows that are different from the vows under the law? Remember what the law had? Commitments, commandments, and consequences? Do you know what the second set of vows has, the new covenant that Jesus came to put in place? Commitments. That's it. That's it. No consequences. 
there's a command, but you do the command as you focus on the commitments. You know what? You know what? Well, here's what they are. His vows to you. You want to marry Jesus? Here's what he says. Here's what you focus on. These are the new covenant. And remember what Jesus said the night before he died, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is what he was talking about. These promises. I will write my law on your heart. I'm not going to write it on rocks. I'm going to write it on my heart. I'm going to write it on the inside. I will be your God and you will be my child. This isn't a master slave. It's a father, son, father, daughter. And I will forgive, be helios to, the word forgive in the New International Version, helios is a Greek word, and we talked about it a lot. What this verse literally says, I will be helios to your unrighteousnesses. And helios means to be gracious, favorable, merciful, non-reacting. You know what God promises with this new covenant? Is that your sin won't make him go, oh, you, oh man. Did I tell you about the ten things? Did I? I tell you what would happen if you didn't do the ten things, didn't I? Oh, I'm sorry, wrong husband. Wrong husband. New husband. You know what he says? His reaction doesn't change from before you did the thing to after you did the thing. He's Helios. Non-reacting. If we believe that, wouldn't that cause us to do everything that he didn't want us to do? If we knew he wasn't reacting to it? I don't think so. Another way to put this? If God in you. God with you. Good ahead of you. Guaranteed. These are the vows he makes. And when he makes vows, and this is it, you want to be married to Jesus? You understand what he died for so that you could be lawfully widowed and happily married. And you know what you do? You remain in these things. Remember what Jesus said? This is the new covenant in my blood. You know what he says? Remain in this. Think about it. What would happen if you thought about this? Made room for this. His commitments. You know what would start happening? You start to believe them. And if you started to believe his commitments, that he's in you and with you and goes ahead of you, you know what would happen? Guess what? Your fear would shrink a little bit. Your obligation would shrink a little bit. Your guilt would shrink a little bit. And you know what would happen? Your heart would grow. Imagine that. Your heart would grow. And you know what you'd start to do? Love him. What would that look like? That would look like what he wants. To love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbors yourself. Can I tell you something? Fear, obligation, and guilt cannot drive love. Would you agree with me? Can you frighten somebody into being really loving? Can you obligate them to be really loving? Can you guilt them to be, well, how does it work? How does that work, guilting somebody to be loving? It doesn't work. You can get them to do stuff. You don't change the inside. What about love? 
Love begets love. Believe that you're widowed and believe that you're married. Um, this verse, the last verse we'll look at, it, it's actually drawn from Jewish marriage custom. Look what it says. Uh, John 14. Actually, it's the next to the last verse. John 14. Jesus says to his disciples this the night before he's going to return to the Father. And how do you imagine they felt? See, they walked away from law and religion to develop a relationship with somebody. You know what they felt about Jesus? No joke. No joke. They loved him. Imagine loving Jesus and knowing that Jesus reflects the Father and they're the same. There's not a big difference between Jesus and the Father. Jesus reflects the Father. You see Jesus, you see the Father. They're the same. Some of us don't feel very comfortable with the Father because we think, oh, gee, we, we associate the Father with the law. That's a mistake, isn't it? Does, does the law reveal God? Maybe a shadow. Does Jesus reveal God? Absolutely. The Father is like Jesus. Do you know that? You don't need to be afraid of him. He's in you and he's with you. He's ahead of you, guaranteed. Leave room for that. You know what? Your love for Jesus and the Father won't go like this. You won't love one and the other. Jesus said, because he was going back, and they're going to miss him. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Well, here's what happened with Jewish marriages. The groom and his father went to the bride and her father. They took a trip. And what they would do, the groom and her father went to the bride and her father, and they would arrange a dowry. And so in that culture, you had to come to an agreement. And so... The groom and the father had to pay a price, and then they arranged the details. And then they didn't marry. Then the groom and the father took off, leaving the bride and her father still there. And what they did, they went and prepared a place that the bride and the groom would occupy. And when the place was done, then the groom would return to the bride marry her, and take her to the place that he had prepared. Now, when we think about this in America, we think, oh, he's preparing mansions. Mansions usually are on a hill. You know, there's a mansion on a hill that Jesus is preparing, and each of us gets our own mansion. But that's not the way it would have worked in the Middle East. The Middle East had lived in China for a couple years, and it was, well, it's more like this. This is an insula. This is kind of the way that they lived, and the father had a residence, and then other residences were built onto this, so they, all these residences, they faced a common courtyard. This is called an insula, and so what ends up happening? Then picture, see where these trees are right there? Maybe they would have to cut these trees down, because the father 
and the groom go and they speak to the bride and the bride's father. They arrange the dowry. They go back. He cuts the trees down and puts a room there, makes a house, puts an addition on. When the addition is finished, what does he do? Goes back, gets the bride, marries her, has the thing, comes back to, and now there's a place there, and this is one of the rooms. And they move in to a common courtyard right next to Dad. Which wouldn't be a good thing if your dad was the law, but is a good thing if your dad is God. That's a courtyard you're going to want to face. That's a place where you're going to want to live. And Jesus said, well, now, with that in mind, I'm going to read that again. Now that you have this background, what he says do not let hearts be troubled trust in God trust also in me he says this to you in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so I would have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you if I go and prepare a place for you I will come and back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am um, where I am not I am is another word for God, where God lives. Jesus is going to come back. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again. When he comes back the second time, he won't be crying in a manger. He'll be large and in charge, coming back for his bride to take her, to take us, to take you. All depends. What vows are you thinking of? Think of his vows, Jesus' vows, your covenant vows. Believe in them. Put your faith in them. Remain in them. That's what a Christian is. Somebody who remains in the words that Jesus speaks. Make room for him. And he comes back and brings you back to be with him. That's what it says. We believe that Jesus, last verse, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Do you know what it means to die as a believer in Christ? God doesn't even call it dying. He calls it falling asleep. Imagine being on your deathbed. Understanding that he's in you. And with you, goods ahead of you. Not that fear, obligation, and guilt aren't there, but they're smaller. Knowing that you're gonna dying is like falling asleep and waking up here. And for eternity, facing a courtyard with one another. The kind of marriage we experience that we were always meant to experience being married to Jesus. It says, um, according to the Lord's own world, verse 15, word, we tell you that if we who are still alive who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
So the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are asleep in Christ will rise first. Their body will rise. When, our, when we die, our spirits raise, and we go to be with him. But then when he comes back a second time, our spirits and our bodies are joined, and that's when we move in. Spirit and body together, that's when we move into heaven. That's when heaven's done forever. Uh, it says, and after that, we were still alive and are left. will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe that you were lawfully widowed through faith in him so you can go from being lawfully wedded to happily married? If you do, I'm going to read this last line. And it will be true of you. First Thessalonians, the last sentence. I'm going to say it once, and then I'm going to have you read it with me. Maybe we'll do it a couple of times. And so we will be with the Lord forever. I want you to go away thinking about that. Say it with me. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Can you make room for that? Say it again. And so we will be with the Lord forever. One more time. And so we will be with the Lord forever. It didn't say with the law forever. With the Lord forever. Forever. Ask the worship team to come up. I want to sing a closing song. By the way, don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. He said, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and back to take you to be with me where I am. Well, Father, thank you for your love for us, for sending your Son so that we could live with you. I pray that we would leave room in our minds for the vows that you make to us commitments that as we make room for them as we believe them it doesn't prevent us from obeying it causes us to obey from the heart we get pulled though we get confused we mix you up with the law and we blend you together and so we end up being afraid that's natural you do want to tell us the good news that's what easter is really about i pray they would understand your commitments they would make room for them so that we could be more authentic followers of yours, so that we could be like your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Happy Easter.